Hi, listeners. Wow, it has been a year. Like many of us, I've had to take a step back during the pandemic. I wanted to release this episode of For the Love of Roe that I've been working on over the past few months. It's hard to believe that it's been almost a year since the interviews you'll hear in this episode, but the powerful testaments of the staff and the advocates that I interviewed are still relevant, especially now. We face a threat to Roe even more so than a year ago when I started this podcast with the death of RBG. So some of the information you hear on this podcast may seem outdated since it's from a year ago, but I want to assure you that it is still relevant. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, we know that Amy Coney Barrett is likely to be confirmed, but beyond that, we we really just don't know. Um It seems important to understand the cases that have been recently decided, including Jew Medical Services v. Russo, and that will be talked about on the episode that you're about to hear. I also want to note that the fight against Louisiana Constitutional Amendment 1, which would deny the right to an abortion in the Louisiana Constitution, is ongoing currently as of the recording of this part of the podcast in mid-October. You'll hear about this in the episode, and you can find out more about how to get involved with that fight at Lift Louisiana's website, which I will put in the show notes. I hope that through For the Love of Roe, through this series that I've offered, that listeners have come to the same conclusion that I did after my experience talking to providers and advocates across the country, and that is that Roe or no Roe, abortion is inaccessible to many people in this country, especially to people of color and especially to those who are poor. This really cannot be stressed enough, especially in these times when white supremacy is being normalized by our current president and protests are ongoing for racial justice. So thanks so much for listening. Keep taking care of yourselves and keep fighting. I often refer to Louisiana as like the anti-choice test kitchen. <laughs> if there is legislation that we're going to, that we see here, it either starts in Texas, Mississippi, or Louisiana, right? So if there is a way to restrict abortion, abortion access through policy, they will try it here. My name is Allison Case. I'm a family doctor and an abortion provider, and over the next few months, I'll be traveling across the country talking with abortion providers and advocates about restrictions in their states and what they think will happen if Roe v. Wade is overturned in the upcoming Supreme Court session. I hope this podcast will serve as a jumping off point for new advocates who want to get involved with the fight for reproductive justice, including abortion access. Access to abortion is a fundamental human right. Thanks for joining me as we learn more about how we can preserve this right together. Hi, all, and welcome to For the Love of Roe. I hope everyone is surviving these difficult times okay. It's been a struggle, to say the least, across the country with the stay-at-home orders, the layoffs, the shortages of protective equipment. Here's to you all, you and yours, hoping you're staying safe, and also a shout-out to all the essential workers in grocery stores, cleaning services, security, mail delivery, healthcare, farming. We appreciate all you do, and thank you for keeping everything running. You may have heard that the anti-abortion movement has apparently no shame and will go ahead and take advantage of a national tragedy, if that will get them closer to what they want. 
We've seen orders in multiple states that seem to exclude abortions from essential health care services in an attempt to block patients from accessing care. These have been challenged, at least in Texas, and I'm not going to be covering that particular issue in depth on the pod today, but I would like to direct you to some other great resources if you want the latest. Some other great podcasts that have covered the current crisis and abortion access during COVID would be Boom Lawyered, so you can look them up, the Abortion Access Force Feminist Sleeper Cell podcast, and also Repros Fight Back. So I would seek out those other resources uh, for the latest. Today, we're going to talk about abortion access in Louisiana. Now, you may have heard more about abortion access in Louisiana over the last few months due to the ongoing Supreme Court case, June Medical Services v. Gee, or v. Russo. There was a change in the Louisiana official bringing the case, so that's what the name change is about. Some arguments have been heard in that case, but due to COVID, everything is on hold. So during this episode, you'll hear the conversations that I had with the director of the clinic at the heart of the case back in the fall, as well as other folks working hard in Louisiana to protect and expand abortion access. So let's get started. I learned a lot about Louisiana during my time there. And one of the things I learned was addressed in the quote you heard at the beginning of this episode about Louisiana. That was Stephanie Bangle. She's the executive director of the New Orleans Abortion Fund. I learned a lot about the different policies that have been enacted in Louisiana that led Stephanie to call it the, quote, anti-abortion test kitchen, including a policy at the heart of a current Supreme Court case, which we'll get to a little later in the show. Another thing I came to understand about Louisiana is how regionally diverse the state is in culture, religion, uh, the feeling, say, in New Orleans is very different from that in Shreveport. Speaking of the land itself, I'd be remiss to leave out some of the current and past Native communities who inhabit what is now Louisiana. Some of those groups include the Natchez, the Chitimacha, Choctaw, and Atacapa. You can find out more about the Native communities in Louisiana and their history at native-languages.org and native-land.ca. As I mentioned before, the state is regionally diverse, and in addition to that, it has some of the most culturally diverse history in the country. I think that one of the things that's really important about Louisiana is that for it being a deep south, southern Gulf Coast state, and for it being, you know, pretty ideologically conservative, pretty religiously conservative, it's also a really robustly cultural state. And I think one of the most significant kind of cultural communities in all of the United States, it's very unique. And we have a lot to celebrate here. That's Michelle Ehrenberg, the executive director of the organization Lift Louisiana, an organization that seeks to improve outcomes for women and children in Louisiana by advocating for all people to have the resources, information, rights, and ability to make their own decisions about their sexual health care needs and to access health care services. You'll hear more from her later in the show about abortion restrictions in Louisiana and Louisiana's complicated current and past political landscape. I also talked with Mayor Ray Boucher, who's the Director of Patient Advocacy at the Hope Medical Clinic for Women and a longtime Louisiana native. Merritt echoed many of Michelle's sentiments about the sense of community in Louisiana and went on to talk about some of the challenges the state faces as well. And can you tell me a little bit about growing up in Louisiana and what that was like? 
Yeah. Um, so I, I love Louisiana. Don't get me wrong. The food is great. Um, people for the most part are amazing. So there's a really strong sense of community just about anywhere you go in Louisiana. I think that sense of community is really strong in Shreveport and it was really strong where I grew up in South Louisiana, but there are some also some really negative things. So we're a state that's really depressed economically, and it's been that way for a really long time. Things like the unemployment rate don't do a really good job of capturing that because I, I, I don't even know what the supposed unemployment rate is for our state, but it may not look that bad. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the actual numbers of people who are able-bodied, working age, and want a job, there's only one job in the state for every three of those people. So regardless of what the actual numbers are, we do not have the jobs to support our population. And folks who are people of color, especially Black people, they tend to lose out on those opportunities more so than others because of the state being entrenched in racism and systems of oppression. So there's also parts of the state that are still really heavily segregated. I was lucky enough where I grew up that that wasn't really the case. But here in Shreveport, schools are still either predominantly white or predominantly black. And when I say predominantly, I'm not talking like 60, 70%. I'm talking like 99%. And there's a really stark contrast in the level of education between the 99% 0.9% white school and the 99.9% black school. And that's from elementary through high school. So in addition to all of the things we talked about yeah. earlier about like economic barriers and stigma and misinformation, people are also not being able to access the level of education they need from a really young age. And there's Shreveport is not alone. There's, lot, there's mm-hmm. places like this throughout the South. Um, The other thing that is really problematic in Louisiana is that we don't really have any formalized sex education. So when I was growing up, the only sex education that I received was an abstinence-only pledge that I had to sign in one six weeks of my physical education class. So if you didn't, you learned about how sex was bad and it caused all of these issues and you shouldn't have sex till you're married because somehow magically once you're married all of those issues go away Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then you sign an abstinence pledge that says I will not have sex until I'm married and if you don't sign the pledge you fail that six weeks of pee Um, and that was the only sex education that I received Mm -hmm. until I was in college so the my introduction to understanding sex and understanding pregnancy was the the pregnancy and then subsequent birth of my first godchild. Um, so I was 14 at the time um, when he was born. And then, you know, that my education, I guess, progressed as more and more of my friends had pregnancies and carried them to term. And mm-hmm. so that's that that's part of what it's like growing up in Louisiana as well. So we have great food. There's all this wonderful wildlife. But then you also have like these huge corporations that are basically, you know, mm-hmm. raping our land and taking our, <laughs> taking our oil without really giving 
proper compensation to the communities that they are making money off of. And then you have this really, really dark history of racism and oppression and misogyny. Um, and then you have legislators who do not invest in their future. They want to invest in their own lives and their own pockets and build relationships with these corporations. And they do whatever it takes for them to get elected, which often means relying on whatever winning side. There's sorts of issues that can sound really divisive, and abortion, I think, is one of those things. Mm-hmm. And so our legislators rely on divisive issues to get elected and kind of go with whatever side the rhetoric is winning on, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, totally. With this landscape in mind, it's not surprising that Louisiana has a varied political landscape as well. Here's Stephanie from the New Orleans Abortion Fund to talk a little more about that. I'm Stephanie Bangle, and I am very recently the executive director of the New Orleans Abortion Fund. Virtually all abortions in Louisiana come out of pocket. And so we help to fill that gap between the healthcare that people are seeking and the healthcare that they're able to afford. Louisiana is one is one of many extremely gerrymandered states across the country, I, I would say, particularly here in the South. Our state is unique in many ways. Even at the most basic level of our law, we practice Napoleonic Code, which I'm not a lawyer. I cannot really explain the differences there. But I think Louisiana is one of many Southern states that faces the same sort of challenges of racially motivated gerrymandering that disenfranchises the bluer communities across our state. Recent elections will show you that there are quite large pockets of blue in this state that's often written off as um, a very red, a very conservative one. Without getting into too many numbers and details, um, our recent governor election certainly showed that. There was a recent election for the state commissioner of agriculture and a self-identified democratic socialist who was endorsed by the New Orleans DSA won over 200,000 votes statewide. And this person won multiple urban areas, multiple parishes. I think that that's, I mean, it's a small example. She wasn't running on abortion, but I think it's really illustrative of how disenfranchisement and gerrymandering changes the narrative around what the political landscape in our state really is. But by all conventional wisdom, you know, we are a conservative state. We are pretty red. We recently had a very major election in our state legislature, wherein over two-thirds of the seats were turned over. And we now have a Republican majority in both the House and the Senate. We do have a Democratic governor, but he is no friend of abortion access. Like Stephanie mentioned, Louisiana is also in this interesting position of having an anti-abortion Democratic governor. I spoke with multiple folks about this as well, including some volunteer escorts at the Hope Medical Group for Women in Louisiana, which again is the clinic at the center of this ongoing Supreme Court case. Uh, I guess I should back up. So one of the things that I think I've seen in a lot of these conservative places that I've been, including my own state in Indiana, is that there's actually, when you get down to it and you talk to people, a lot of people feel either like ambivalent about abortion or they feel like when they really think about it, they're like, oh, I guess that is like someone's, should be someone's choice. Unfortunately, I think that the 
legislature does not reflect that like uncertainty or like complicated understanding of abortion. Yes. <laughs> uh, do you, what do you feel like that's like here? Like, do you uh, feel like your legislators are in touch with people's ideas? What do you think? Well, I, and, and this being the first day of early voting, and our governor, who happens to be a Democrat, uh, but he is a pro-life Democrat, he signed a heartbeat bill. That is hard to overcome um, as, as a voter and a Democrat, that I'm gonna have to pull a lever for somebody that does not support choice in any way, shape, or form, not when it comes to that. Now, he's done some other good things, and, and granted, that helps, but it's not... If I thought any other Democrat had had a chance, I probably would have pulled the lever for them, but I knew better. In this, in, and I, I think a lot of people feel that way, though, is, you know, it's the lesser of two evils most of the time yeah. when you go to the polls, and it's no different here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think most of our legislators are at least pro life is big in this part of the country, and the legislators reflect that. Mm-hmm. They do. It's a much stronger voice. Given what we've heard about the politics in Louisiana, you can imagine that patients seeking access to abortion face a lot of barriers. Here's Michelle Ehrenberg with Lyft Louisiana. Well, we have about 23 of the most onerous restrictions on the books. Um, We have many more than that um, Mm -hmm. that you could count, but ones that actually are impacting the ability of patients to access care. And so some of those include a waiting period. Right now we have a 24-hour waiting period. Uh, We actually passed a law to increase that to 72 hours, and that's not in effect at the moment because it's part of a a court challenge. We also have an ultrasound uh, and counseling requirement. So Mm -hmm. people are going to be required to go to the clinic for two separate appointments, first to have an ultrasound uh, and to receive counseling. The counseling is scripted by the state uh, and a lot of the information is medically inaccurate, but the providers are required to give that information to the patients regardless. We also only have three abortion clinics left in the state because the legal and regulatory scheme that the state has constructed over the past few decades has made it very, very, very difficult for clinics to stay open or for new clinics to open. So we had in 2011, we had seven clinics and uh, in, in just you know the last eight years, we have gone down to three clinics. So if you live in the city of New Orleans or you live in Shreveport, Louisiana, you have access to a clinic in your city. But if you live in a, in a city like Lake Charles, Louisiana, then you're going to be traveling 130 miles one way just to reach a clinic where you can get an abortion. So there are a lot of barriers to seeking an abortion in Louisiana. If you've listened to any of the other episodes, you know that across the country, there are lots of non-legal barriers to seeking abortion, many of which were mentioned by Michelle. But one that is very prominent in Louisiana is just the stigma of seeking an abortion. The most profound barriers that folks face when seeking abortion 
is the stigma that's woven into our communities, and that is largely driven by Catholic doctrine, doctrine around abortion. This again is Stephanie from the New Orleans Abortion Fund. That's not to say that there aren't a lot of pro-choice Catholic folks in our community. There are. Catholics for Choice does a lot of work here in Louisiana. One of our board members um, is proudly a Catholic for Choice and does a lot of organizing around that work. But, you know, we're in the Deep South. There's strong Catholicism. There's strong Baptist messaging. There's a lot of strong identity that's really rooted around stigma against abortion. And that's a very difficult barrier for folks to overcome. I also spoke with one of the counselors at the Hope Medical Group for Women, Jaquita, about the power of stigma and the impact it has on folks who are seeking abortion. It's a stigma. Um, I know when I first started working here, some they used to ask me, oh, so you're still over there killing babies? And I'm like, what What do you mean? Yeah, I'm not killing babies. I'm helping women make informed you know, choices about their life. You know, we're not helping them. Mm-hmm. You know, by putting, you know, putting that stigma on them like that, that's making them feel worse than they already feel. In addition to these barriers, funding for safety net programs in general in Louisiana and in many southern states is extremely low. This has led to Louisiana having some of the worst health outcomes in the country. Merritt Reboucher with the Hope Medical Group for Women talked with me a little bit about some of these general shortfalls in funding for healthcare in Louisiana. So in Louisiana, TANF funds, which is temporary assistance for needy families, Mm -hmm. only 12% of that goes directly to families in need. And of that, only about 2% actually comes in the form of what we think of as like a welfare check. So lists for things like child care assistance, job core, those types of things we think about being part of the social safety net um, throughout the country, those things don't really, those things do not really exist in Louisiana. So some people are do have access to those programs, but the waiting list for most of those programs prevents most people from accessing any type of help as far as that's concerned. So usually folks who are in the deepest poverty you can imagine, the only assistance they're receiving is food stamps. Mm-hmm. So folks who need our services more than anyone mm-hmm literally are just struggling to survive. And when you're struggling to survive, it's hard to make time to come to two separate visits that you can't bring your kids to. If you just got a job and there's a three strikes you're out rule and you mm-hmm. you can't take off work to come here, um, there's just barrier after barrier after barrier that folks face. And that's worse for people who are poor. That's worse for people of color. That's not even getting to folks who speak English as a second language or maybe don't really speak English at all. Um, So there's just lots and lots of barriers that stack Mm -hmm. that mean that the reality is abortion is already inaccessible for a lot of people in our state. And we work really hard as a clinic to make it as accessible as possible and to help folks with the financial side of things. But the reality is there's already folks who want to have an abortion and are not able to have one in this state. Mm -hmm. So what we've talked about is Louisiana's very regional politics. Like most states in the South, the state is also very racially segregated. There's very poor public health funding, as we discussed. And as Stephanie mentioned before, this is pretty much a test lab for anti-abortion policies. And then, of course, 
on the national stage, right in the mix, is this court case, Jew Medical Services v. Russo. So what's the story behind that? That's something I wanted to find out when I went to visit the Hope Medical Group for Women in Louisiana. I talked with the director of that clinic, Kathleen Pittman, and to the executive director of Lyft Louisiana, Michelle Ehrenberg, to find out more. Yeah, so the the law that is part of this this challenge that's now going before the Supreme Court was actually passed in 2014, and it was a year after Texas passed their law. And Louisiana actually looked at Texas's law and said, oh, look, when that law went into effect, it closed all these clinics down. What a great idea. Let's do that here in Louisiana. And so they passed the law in 2014. It was immediately challenged um, at the end of that year. And then it was on its own trajectory through the court system when the Texas law ended up at the Supreme Court. And so what happened with Louisiana's law is it was basically put on hold, waiting for the Supreme Court to decide in the Texas law case. And when the Supreme Court struck down Texas's case, Texas's law, then that really should have been the end of it for Louisiana. But our attorney general in Louisiana is extremely anti-abortion. And he decided that he was not going to give up on this law. And so he decided that he wanted to keep fighting for it. And so he spent, you know, probably at this point, you know, over a million, millions, maybe uh, dollars uh, defending this unconstitutional law back through the court system. And unfortunately, what happened is that when it made it back to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, which is the, the circuit that oversees both Texas and Louisiana and Mississippi, then the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals decided that the facts were different in the case in Louisiana and that the Supreme Court precedent in Whole Woman's Health in the Texas case didn't really apply the same way to Louisiana. It was a really confusing ruling, even for most of the legal scholars that we know and that we work with. But that is the decision that they made. And so that's why we find ourselves in this position now where we are taking a law that already was struck down as being unconstitutional in Texas back before the Supreme Court. And I think that one of the things that is so confounding to people is how is it that a law could be unconstitutional in one state and upheld as constitutional in another state that shares the same border? We really cannot have a system in this country of rights where, depending on the jurisdiction, the state or the appeals court (laughs) district Mm -hmm. that you live in determines your fundamental constitutional rights. And so that's, I think, fundamentally what's at stake in this case. My name's Kathleen Pittman. I'm the administrator at Hope Medical Group for Women. Um, When we first found out that our cert petition had been granted and the Supreme Court would hear the case, you know, of course, we're immediately relieved. That means there there won't be immediate shutdown um, for the clinics. But then that's followed by absolute frustration and aggravation that we're even having this conversation. That was done three years ago. It should be over and done with at this point, and it isn't. Mm-hmm. And I think what happens with our case and with the Supreme Court, will it's going to be very important for reproductive health care for the future to come, not just in Louisiana, but you know, this will set the tone for the nation. 
So I think it's very, very important, not just for us, but, you know, for clinics in other, other towns, other states. And what, like, let's say they, if, if that were to go through that bill here, would it shut down all the clinics here or would it be? When we filed the petition mm-hmm. at that point in time. There were only two physicians in the state that provided abortion care that had admitting privileges. Mm-hmm. One of them was here, a physician here. Our physician had stated under oath in court that if he were, you know, the last man standing, he would not be able to continue care because of all the targeting that that yeah. we know would increase. Right. I mean, you know, everything would be concentrated on him. It might not mean we would shut down immediately, but he would not be able to handle it for very long. Additionally, one physician cannot handle all the cases. Now, there was a physician in South Louisiana that had privileges. I don't know the status of of those clinics. Uh, I doubt seriously if things have improved any, but whether they're even worse down there now, I cannot tell you, you know, with any certainty at this point in time. So, yeah, it could literally close all but one clinic, and that cl- then that particular clinic might not could ha- well certainly couldn't handle all the cases sure we We've had lots of calls from people supporting us. One was from a guy named John Green in New York who wanted us to know that he had just had cataract surgery, and he asked every single doctor in that outpatient surgery center if they had admitting privileges, and they were like, no, of course not. I don't need admitting privileges. If there's any issues, we can take you to the hospital and do a transfer. It's not a big deal. We can make sure you receive the care you need. And having an abortion is a whole lot safer than having cataract surgery. There's a much smaller um, chance of there being any risks or complications. Mm-hmm. Well, there's always risk. There's a much smaller chance of there being complications. Um, abortion is one of the safest outpatient surgeries you can have. It takes five minutes for a surgical procedure. If you're under 14 weeks, it takes a little bit longer. If you're between 14 and 16 weeks, but it is a very, very simple procedure. And more to the point, when people need additional care, we are 100% able to bring them to the closest hospital when they're at our center. And if they're at home and they need additional care, they are 100% able to get to the hospital closest to them. And it doesn't matter when we have, for instance, if we have a patient who's coming, driving from three hours away, they're not going to come to a hospital within 15 miles of us because we have admitting privileges there. They're going to go to the hospital closest to them. Requiring admitting privileges for physicians does not help health. It does not help anyone's quality of care. All it does is force abortion clinics to close because a hosp- we live in a capitalist nation. So hospitals are not going to waste their time giving admitting privileges to a physician who is not going to be sending them patients and earning them money. Mm -hmm. So because we do not have high complication rates and we do not typically send people to the hospital, we are not going to be earning the hospital any money by them giving one of our physicians admitting privileges. 
So it's a regulation that is not only unnecessary, but it's also harmful because it's a difficult process for physicians to get admitting privileges to a hospital when they don't have any patients that they're going to be admitting. Mm -hmm. All it was designed to do was to shut abortion clinics down. That was the intent of the law. And because that was the intent of the law, because it was passed when Roe v. Wade Um, was in existence, and hopefully it will forever be in existence, Mm -hmm. Um, it was unconstitutional. So again, that was Michelle Ehrenberg with Lyft Louisiana, Kathleen Pittman, the medical director of the Hope Medical Group for Women, and Merritt Ray Boucher, the director of patient advocacy at Hope Medical Group for Women, giving us the background of the Supreme Court case and uh, some of the ways that it will impact patients in the state. An additional piece of the Supreme Court case that isn't as kind of broadly talked about is a provision within the case that will also challenge the right for a organization like Hope Medical Group for Women, for instance, to bring a case on behalf of a patient. I'll let Merritt explain why this is so important for cases in the future. It's a big deal because that's historically how we have fought um, trap laws. And whenever, whenever we're saying that a patient has to be the one to bring a case, to bring an appeal, that's not just, that's, that's not a small ask, right? It's asking folks who are already jumping through all of the hoops as they exist to now take more time out of their schedule that they very well could not afford to take and be willing to go through the process of being added as a plaintiff, and they would have to be pregnant during that process. Mm -hmm. So like, just because I've had an abortion in the past, and I think this law is crazy, I can't be a plaintiff. I would have to be currently pregnant to be, be able to become a plaintiff. So that's a little bit of the background of the case. And like I mentioned before, the case is ongoing. But as you heard, it has significant implications for access, not just in Louisiana, but across the country. So keep a close eye on this case. Like I mentioned before, there are some other podcasts who have covered the case in more detail. I mentioned them earlier in the show, and I would recommend you check them out if you want an even deeper dive. I'll also post some links in the show notes to some other resources that can give you a little bit of a deeper dive into this case. So back at the state level in Louisiana, there's another battle brewing for abortion access. This is Michelle Ehrenberg with Lift Louisiana again. Yeah, so in this uh, 2019 legislative session, the legislature approved a constitutional amendment. And so this is now going to go onto the ballot in November of 2020. And the amendment would basically enshrine in the Constitution a, a prohibition on abortion or public funding for abortion. So the voters will be given the choice, you know, the the chance to to vote whether or not to put in our state constitution a statement that actually takes rights away from people. And we are going to, we are in the process of building up a a campaign initiative to oppose that constitutional amendment. And we are, you know, working right now to engage other partners besides the ones that we normally work with, because we really think that this would lay the groundwork for not only banning abortion in Louisiana outright, but also 
criminalizing abortion in Louisiana. And uh, that's something that we're very concerned about. Mm-hmm. And how does it work exactly? Like it's a, so it's a ballot initiative to get the constitutional amendment and then the Senate and House of your state legislature would vote on it to make it an amendment? So they've already voted to approve the constitutional amendment. And so that process has already happened. So they vote on it first. Uh It requires two thirds of both houses to approve a constitutional amendment. And so now it will go on the ballot and whatever the voters decide in November of 2020 uh, is what will ultimately happen, whether the amendment will be included in the state constitution or not. And we are concerned because... We've seen ballot initiatives in other states that look very similar to Louisiana, such as Alabama, West Virginia, actually be successful in the last couple of years. And so we know that we have a a big fight ahead of us Mm -hmm. to defeat this ballot initiative, but we're really determined because we think it's very critical. And one of the conversations that came up around the ballot initiative when it was when it was going through the legislature in 2019, is that there are no exceptions in this ballot initiative for people who have been victimized um, through rape or incest. And so ban it, you know, so this would take away their, you know, their right to obtain an abortion. And I think we're hoping that the voters in Louisiana will recognize that as an extreme measure and and vote against this initiative. Got it. And is this a situation where if this were to, if it were to pass, it's not something that would be um, enforced unless Roe was overturned? Yeah, so it, it, it really would just be words on paper uh, initially because right now Roe is the, the law of the mm-hmm. country uh, and is protecting rights even in places that, you know, that have bans that are, uh, that are on the books. However, our concern is that because the, the language that the, the amendment mm-hmm. uh, is putting forward and, and would include in the state constitution, we think that there is a chance that it would make it very hard for Uh, the state legislature and advocates to ever pass any laws that would actually make it easier for people to access abortion. So for example, if we were to try and be successful to pass a law that would allow for exceptions for survivors of rape and incest, we're concerned that this constitutional amendment could be used to actually challenge the validity of that law, because essentially a judge could interpret it as saying there, the constitution says that there are no, there is no right to an abortion. And so this law is, is unconstitutional because it's, it's, it's providing or affirming rights to abortion, which the constitution prohibits. Even if Roe was still in place. Yes. So as you just heard from Michelle, this amendment has the power to not only block access to abortion, but also to block future attempts to improve abortion access. It's really an all-hands-on-deck moment for Louisiana, but the good news is that there are lots of ways to get involved. Well, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to get involved, and it really kind of just depends on what you're interested in doing. Uh, I know that 
The clinics are always looking for new volunteers to be escorts at the clinic. We are always looking for new lawyers to to volunteer to represent young people or to do pro bono work for us in some of our legal challenges and some of the policy analysis that we need to do. And we have this constitutional amendment. And um, we are going to be launching that campaign early next year, and we're going to need a lot of volunteers to do everything from phone banking to canvassing, knocking on doors, and having conversations in, in communities with people to help them understand how devastating this constitutional amendment could be for people in Louisiana uh, and, you know, especially people that can get pregnant in Louisiana and we need to do everything that we can to fight it. So I would just urge people to uh, to sign up to volunteer in their own community to work to defeat this constitutional amendment. I also talked with Stephanie from the New Orleans Abortion Fund about how new advocates can get involved. What uh, advice do you have for new advocates who want to get involved uh, but aren't involved yet? We need you. Um, Just show up. (laughs) Maybe don't just show up. (laughs) (laughs) If new new advocates who want to get involved, um, I encourage them to reach out to their local abortion fund, to reach out to other local reproductive health rights and justice organizations in their community and to see where the need is. I can't speak for everyone, but my guess is that virtually all organizations (laughs) that do our work could use some assistance in something. One of the nicest offers that I've gotten recently is one of our clinic escorts took me aside the other day and she said, I know things are probably pretty nuts at the office. I'm great at administrative work. If you need someone to just come do some filing and paperwork, call me in. That's great. That's not the sexiest thing, but um, I would guess that most most organizations could use some help with administrative work at the very least. But I think what's most profound for me in bringing new advocates into the work is bringing their communities with them, bringing their families with them. When we get new volunteers, when we have events where we're talking about the legislative challenges or the challenges that our callers face, I always ask folks to tell five friends, to have this conversation. I know that that's not feasible for everyone. I recognize that a lot of advocates who um, are raring to get into this work or who are doing this work come from families where this is just forbidden conversation. There's a young woman that I've been speaking with in Baton Rouge a bit about her um, advocacy in her community. And she mentioned to me several months ago that um, she really wanted to work with us as an intern, but wasn't able to take the internship for the summer because at this moment, her mom is still helping her pay for her housing while she's in school. Mm -hmm. And if her mom knew that she was interning with us, that she would no longer help her help support her through school in that way. And that's real. And I understand it. I think it's critical that we all challenge the folks in our families who don't see the justice and the right to abortion as a critical one. But I also recognize that that is sometimes 
a matter of having a roof over your head and I need folks to make sure that they're taking care of themselves first. At the end of the day, you know, our clinics and our clients and our community are resilient and they're fighters. And I mean, just looking at the way that our community rallied around our movement writ large around the six week ban, I know that there's fight here. And I know that there is a pro-choice, pro-access, pro-abortion Louisiana community. And we just need to stand together and continue to stand together. That about wraps it up for our episode covering Louisiana. If you feel inspired and want to donate to organizations helping to improve abortion access, check out Lift Louisiana and the New Orleans Abortion Fund. I will post both those links in the show notes. For now, stay safe, stay at home, and we'll catch you in the next episode.